Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles, please. Romans chapter 10, verses 18 through 21. The title of the message today is Without Excuse. Romans 10, 18 through 21. We come today to the final pericope of the 10th chapter. You recall that the overall theme of the letter of the Romans uh, was that of justification by faith. Paul is declaring that man is a hopeless rebel, a sinner against his creator. And he's really answering one question throughout all 16 chapters And that is, how could a man or a woman be made right with a holy God? And his answer, of course, is through Christ. Paul is declaring that forgiveness, atonement is available to all kinds of people. And from Paul's perspective, there are really only two kinds of people in the world. They were either Jews or Gentiles, but it was available to Jew and Gentile alike. And he punctuates that truth here in chapter 10 by declaring for all time that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. However, the obvious truth was that those being saved in Paul's day, the vast majority of them were Gentiles and not Jews. And this had caused apparently many of Paul's Jewish peers to stumble over the gospel. Because to them, this fact implied one of several things, possibilities. One, maybe God was unfaithful to his promise. Maybe he was lying to Israel when he said they were his forever people. Or or maybe they would say God meant well, but he was not powerful enough. He was unable to keep his promises of course, Paul refutes those excuses out of hand. He knows that the real issue was that most Jews believed, and many still do today, that if Jesus were really the Messiah, then the Jewish leaders would have recognized him. One of their real stumbling blocks was religious pride. If anyone would have known it, it was us. How can these Gentiles receive him if we don't? And so in response, Paul goes on a three-chapter apologetics tour. Chapter 9, 10, and 11. And in chapter 9, we see God's perspective on the problem, which from his perspective is no problem at all. Paul made it clear from the Old Testament that not all Jewish people were really saved, even in the Old Covenant. In fact, God chose to use a remnant throughout redemptive history. That is a small group rather than the whole. And here in chapter 10, we've been looking at the human perspective. Who's to blame for the fact that most Jews don't believe on Jesus? Well, Paul says it's not God. He's done everything that is necessary. He says the real problem comes down to the fact that there's been a misunderstanding about a couple of things. One, they've misunderstood the purpose of the law. It was never to exonerate them, but to indict them, to show us that we can't please God on our own. But the real problem was related to the law, and that is Jewish people, by and large, sought to get to God's kind of righteousness by the keeping of the law, that is through works righteousness, where God's plan has always been that righteousness is by faith alone. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to start in chapter 11, which tells us God's future plan for Israel. The question is, is God finished with Israel? Paul's clear answer is going to be no, and we'll see why. But that's for then. This is today. Uh, Let's talk about chapter 10, beginning in verse 18. Scripture says, but I say, surely they've never heard, have they? Now, Paul's talking about Israel. They're offering an excuse that maybe the reason more of them weren't saved is that they haven't heard the message. 
So he uses rhetorical questions. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? And then he answers his own question, indeed they have. Their voices have gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I, have, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing, obeying of his word today. So Paul is really rebuking his own nation here, the nation of Israel. Because he says, by and large, and I, I want to add that phrase over and again, by and large. He's not saying that every Jewish person rejected Jesus. Paul, of course, was Jewish. The 12 apostles were Jewish. 3,000 Jewish people were saved on the day of Pentecost. But by and large, most of the people who are coming to faith in Paul's time were Gentiles. His rebuke of Israel is that they had hearing without heeding. Hearing without heeding. You remember that in the four Gospels, Jesus often begins one of his teachings with a statement like this. He who has ears, let him what? Hear. Now, he's not talking about the processes, which are amazing, by the way, of which sound waves come into the receptacle known as our outer ear and are translated and signals sent to our brain and therefore we communicate with one another. He, he's talking about understanding and obeying the message of God. So we need to go back to verse 16 at this point because I ran out of time last Sunday, honestly. It's kind of like my favorite college football team. We never lose, we just run out of time. <laughs> I ran out of time last week. We were talking about why our church does missions. We were examining a number of reasons why we do that. And I pointed out uh, that one of the reasons that we do it, missions, is that it's a great privilege to do so. Like the Greek soldier who was chosen and commissioned to run the 26 miles from the plains of Marathon back to Athens to declare that the Persians had been defeated. It's a great privilege that we have, isn't it? To take the gospel across the street and across the world to sinners who are hopeless without it. So Paul quoted Isaiah to say that those who carry the message have beautiful feet in the eyes of God. But Paul quickly reminds his readers that not everyone sees our feet as beautiful just as not everyone sees the gospel as good news, he's thinking primarily of his Jewish peers and friends when he says in verse 16, however, they did not all hear the good news for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It reminds me of what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians, speaking of the aroma of the gospel. That is everywhere we go and we take the gospel, there's a spiritual smell to that. And some people, smell the gospel on us and they're attracted to it. It's winsome to them, it makes them hungry for more. But those who are in stubborn unbelief, it turns their stomach. Men, can you remember when your wife was pregnant with one of your children and you thought you would do her a favor and start supper and she would come in and say, Ooh, that smells horrible. Something that maybe had been her favorite when she was not pregnant now makes her sick. Well, that's the idea, that wherever we go, we carry this aroma with us of the gospel. And to some, it's attractive. To some, it's repulsive. And Paul is saying that to most of his Jewish peers, his message repulsed rather than attracted. So Paul is continuing now in that apologetic of why God is not to blame for Israel's unbelief by dismantling 
their objections and their excuses one by one. So their first objection in this part of scripture is that some might argue that if faith comes by hearing the message about Christ, then perhaps Israelites who are in unbelief are in unbelief because they didn't hear about Christ. Well, what does Paul say to that? Verse 18, but I say, surely they've never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now, Paul is alluding to Psalm 19.4. You might recall that the 19th Psalm is about revelation, how God has revealed himself, how he's turned the light on, spiritually speaking, to humanity. And we, we say he's done so in two broad categories. One is through general revelation, that is nature, by what we can see that God has created. We know some things about him. He's powerful, he's orderly, he's good. And then on the other hand, we need special revelation, that is God's word and his son to know how to be saved. And so he's appealing first to general revelation in Psalm 19.4. And remember, he's talking about the stars and the planets and they're celebrating the goodness of God. Their voice has gone into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. That is, wherever you go in the world, we can observe nature and give God glory. Now, Lord willing, Wednesday morning, I'm going to get on a plane and go to Alaska. But I'm not prospecting for gold. I'll be preaching up there. And um, in Alaska, the days are shorter this time of year. But we'll still be able to see God's glory on display. I assure you, I've been before. It's gorgeous. Uh, and, and Andrew Young, our youth minister, spent two weeks visiting family in Australia recently. And their perspective on things is, is different in nature. But the point is, no matter where you go in the world, all of nature is declaring the goodness and the glory of God. And he's using this to say, and it's also true that Israel has heard and been exposed to the gospel. And we know that Israel, more than any other nation on earth, cannot plead ignorance of God's plan as a reason for rejecting the gospel. How do we know? Because the gospel came to them first. Paul says it over and again, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. On the day of Pentecost, which was a Jewish festival held in a Jewish holy city, Jewish apostles preached the good news and the first converts of those apostles on that day were Jewish people. 3,000 saved and baptized in one day. But it's more than the day of Pentecost. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, which begins this three-chapter apologetic, Paul begins by listing the advantages that Jewish people have as it relates to the gospel. He says in verse 1 of chapter 9, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I would wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's speaking of his fellow Jews who are Israelites. Now listen to this. To whom belong the adoption of sons, the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers, that's the patriarchs, and from whom is Christ according to the flesh. So I listed eight blessings I counted right there. All of the Old Testament, in other words, is pointing to Christ. Jesus told the Pharisees that in his day. He said, you search the scriptures, for in them you, you, you think you can find salvation. But they looked in vain because they overlooked the meaning of the scriptures, and that is Jesus. Every Old Testament sacrifice, every bull or lamb or goat or pigeon that was sacrificed was a picture 
a foreshadowing, a typical prophecy of the coming Christ. The prophets, Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, all of them were predicting Christ. And then right before he came to earth, he sent one more prophet, the one that Jesus called the greatest ever born of woman, John the Baptist. And he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's here. And then of course he did come, Christ himself, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the son of God came to earth and lived among men and performed many signs and wonders and taught as one having authority and went to the cross as a sheep to the slaughter. And yet, by and large, they did not receive him. The, the point Paul is making is that Israel cannot reasonably plead ignorance, even if ignorance were a valid reason for rejecting God. And it is not. How do I know that? Well, in this same book of Romans, chapter 1, Paul begins this incredible letter by declaring this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible powers, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. He's alluding there to general revelation. So that they, they, speaking of all humanity, are without what? Excuse. No person has an excuse for rejecting God and his gospel because ignorance is not possible if you grow up on planet earth because there's general revelation all around you. And not only that, many of them had special revelation of God's word. Many of these Jewish people grew up going to synagogue every week. They were taught the scriptures. That's how they taught them to read. And if you think that's not enough, Paul declares that all of us are born with God's law written on our heart. Now, what does that mean? That means little Johnny is not just a rascal. Little Johnny was not born a blank moral slate. Little Johnny and little Susie are born with God's law written on their heart. And you don't have to teach them how to lie. They know how to lie. And they know it's a lie and that's why they cover it up. He's saying we have the knowledge of right and wrong from birth. And so all of us are without excuse. No, the problem, Paul says, with Israel is not ignorance. It's a failure to obey. So Israel has heard, but most of them are willingly, stubbornly refusing to believe. They are hearing without heeding, in other words. So that's the first problem Paul points out. The second is they have knowledge without submitting. Verse 19. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. So Paul is refuting two excuses for Israel's unbelief back to back. One we've already dealt with. Israel has not heard. Paul says, don't even try that. No way. They've had more knowledge than anyone. Secondly, they have not known. That is, they hadn't understood the message they heard. And Paul says that's not true. So what's his argument? It's a little difficult to decipher unless you're very familiar with the Old Testament. And he's hearkening back to the time of Moses. 
Moses was told by God at the end of the book of Deuteronomy that I'm not going to allow you to go in the promised land. For 40 years, he led them in the wilderness. But because of some actions that he took, God says it's Joshua that's going to have the privilege of leading these people into the promised land. But Moses, rather than having a pity party, getting mad, he spent the rest of his days getting the people ready. And he knew, because he had been with their parents for 40 years, how they were. And so he's predicting their apostasy when they enter the promised land. He says they will worship gods which are not really gods, those false idols that they're going to encounter. Of course, they did. And so in response, God is going to provoke Israel to jealousy by blessing a people who are in reality not a people. Just as they worship gods that are not gods, God's going to bless a people that are not a people. Now, who do the Israelites, the Jewish people, consider not really a people? All Gentiles. So you've got Jews and everybody else in their mind. And so God's going to provoke them to anger and jealousy by using those Gentiles to judge Israel. Did he do that? Of course. He used the Babylonians who were exceedingly wicked. He used the Assyrians who were more wicked than the Babylonians, if that's possible. And he would use that cycle of belief and apostasy and judgment and forgiveness. Belief, apostasy, judgment and forgiveness. We see this pattern throughout human history. But it is clear, Paul says, that Israel understood that God was blessing the Gentiles with the gospel and this was provoking them to anger and jealousy. Here's what I think he means. If Israel didn't understand the implications of the gospel, that God was setting them aside temporarily to welcome the Gentiles into his family, if they didn't understand that, they wouldn't have been angry about it. Christianity would just be viewed by them as just another one of the dozens of religious sects that were in the world at that time. Wouldn't have mattered to them at all. But they were angry about it and they were jealous about it so much so they wanted to kill Paul over it. You do remember that when Paul brought some Gentile converts into Jerusalem, they plotted and said, we will not give rest to our eyes until this man is dead. Paul says they understood very well what we were saying with the gospel. So that excuse is off the table. They had knowledge. They had understanding, but they willfully, stubbornly stiffened their necks. And they refused to believe even in the face of a mountain of evidence. You ever had a friend you're trying to share the gospel with and they say, you know, I, I, I've heard all that. But I just, I'm, not, I'm unconvinced. If I could just see a miracle, if I could see it with my own eyes, these things happened 2,000 years ago. How do we know for sure it's been rightly preserved and communicated? But you know, Jesus lived in a generation that was always demanding a sign. Do you remember? And Jesus says, no sign is going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah, who spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. He was saying, what greater sign could there be than that, that the dead are raised? He's speaking of his own resurrection. And this is interesting enough. Let's talk about Jonah, as Jesus did. Here's a great example of a Jewish man who was angry that God blessed the Gentiles. God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh, which was a, a Syrian, pagan, bloodthirsty city, and tell them that I'm about to destroy them. But Jonah got on a boat heading in the opposite direction. And 
typically the understanding is he was afraid of the Assyrians because they were so mean. That's not the story at all. He got on the boat and went the opposite way of Assyria is he was afraid, all right. He was afraid that God would forgive them. And he didn't want that. He wanted God to destroy them off the face of the earth. But when God finally got his attention, spit him up on the seashore, he finally went to Nineveh and he preached that in a few days God was going to destroy Nineveh. There was not one hint of grace. There was not one hint of hope in his message. He just said, God's about to kill y'all, bye. <laughs> and he did that from house to house and business to business. And do you know what? God was able to overcome a mean-spirited prophet. We say in Mississippi, God can grow a lot of corn on a crooked row. I'll explain to y'all one-on-one -on -one <laughs> what that means. But God forgave them. Because they began to think our only hope is to plea and sue for mercy. That crazy prophet's right. We are wicked and bloodthirsty. We are deserving of God's wrath. Our only hope is to, as the king said, perchance he'll be merciful to us. So he declared a fast. And the people sat down in sackcloth and ashes and covered their animals with sackcloth and ashes. And God forgave them. Not because they deserved it, because he's a good God, right? And, and this is what was happening in Paul's day. The people understood it just as Jonah did. God was forgiving the Gentiles and they didn't like it. In fact, he says what made them angry is this, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Just like those Ninevites weren't seeking for God. They weren't asking, they weren't searching the scriptures night and day. They were going merely on their way to hell, but God intervened in their life and he saved them and most of Paul's Jewish friends didn't like it one bit. Well, that is Israel's disposition towards God's provision. Israel's posture towards God's provision of a savior was this, no thanks. What is God's disposition and posture towards Israel? Well, Paul seems to indicate that God's posture has not changed towards them. It's this. He welcomes them, any who would repent. He is inviting today all Jewish people and all people, whether Jew or Gentile, to accept his son. That's our third point. The Jewish people were invited without accepting. Verse 21, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. Paul, one more time, is, is making it clear that the fault of Israel's unbelief does not lie with God. What more could he have done? He gave them the message through the Old Testament scriptures, through the prophets, through the patriarchs, through the sacrificial system, through Christ living among them. Paul says they had the knowledge of forgiveness through Christ by observing the Gentiles. If God will forgive a Gentile, he'll surely forgive one of his own. And he stands today, Paul says, still having been abused and rejected, standing with arms outstretched, waiting to receive this disobedient and obstinate people. How long? He says all day long he stands that way. 
The Bible says a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years a day to the Lord. Don't, don't read that to mean God's giving them 24 hours. We live, theologians tell us, in the day of grace. That is, from the time that Jesus ascended into glory to the time that he comes to judge all flesh in the day of grace, which means so long as he's not come yet, so long as you're still alive, you have another opportunity to repent and be saved. Now you think about God's dealings with humanity historically. The Bible says he's long-suffering. He puts up with a lot. He's merciful. He's not rash. I, I think of Noah. God told him he was going to destroy all flesh except for Noah and his sons. And he told him to build an ark. And it took him a hundred years to build the ark. And my understanding of the scripture is that at any time in that 100 years, if those people would have repented, he would have forgiven them. But they did not. Right up until that time, that first drop of rain hit someone on the forehead. And here we are, 2,000 years removed from the crucifixion. Year after year, decade after decade has passed. Generation after generation, God is standing there with arms extended all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. Thank God some people are responding to that invitation. In every generation there's a remnant of Jewish Christians. There's Gentiles who are being saved. But Jesus said it's a small gate, a narrow path, and few there be that find it. But praise God some are being saved. Many in this room have been saved. Do you remember... When Moses extended his arms, they came up against their enemies, the Amalekites. And Joshua went down into the valley to, to fight them, the armies of the Lord. Moses went upon the side of the mountain and he held his hands up to heaven. And so long as Moses held his hands up, the battle went the way of Israel. But Moses was an old man. He got tired. Try that when you get home. Hold your arms up and see how long you make it. And his arms began to sag. And when his arms began to sag, the battle went the other way. The Amalekites started winning. And so they set Moses down on a boulder. And his brother Aaron held up one arm. And his friend Hur held up the other. And all day long, God defeated their enemies before them. But friends, our God doesn't need any help holding his arms up to extend an invitation to a lost and dying world. His arm, he says, is not shortened one inch. He's as strong today as he's ever been. He's as able and ready to save as he's ever been. And until Jesus returns, I take it, he's going to stand waiting to receive a disobedient and an obstinate people. What did Jesus say? Matthew 23, 27. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, stonest those which are sent unto thee. How often would I gather thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, but you would not. He's speaking to Israel. Jesus is brokenhearted over the obstinance and the stiff necks of Israel. And I think sometimes those of us who preach on the sovereignty of God in election come across as well, our job is just to preach the gospel. We could care less whether anyone is saved or not. And if that is the impression we're giving, shame on us. Jesus was not ambivalent. He was not of mixed emotions 
or whether people believed or not. He was brokenhearted that they didn't. And if you want to really see this on display, go home and read Isaiah chapter 5. Most Christians are very familiar with Isaiah chapter 6, the holiness of God, where Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Go back and read Isaiah chapter 5. It is a parable of God's goodness to Israel and their rejection of him. Jesus is paraphrasing that parable in the New Testament when he tells his stories about vineyards. And God asked rhetorically to Israel, what more could I have done for you? I gave you a choice piece of ground. What did Moses say to the people before he sent them in the promised land? You will dwell in houses that you did not make and you will pick grapes from vineyards you did not plant. God defeated their enemies and gave them their homes and their farms already built. He says, I gave you the choicest vine. I gave you the best plant to which to plant the vineyard. I put a tower in the middle of the vineyard so that you could see your enemies. I put a hedge of protection all around you. And I only ask one thing of you, that you produce grapes. Isn't that what a vineyard's supposed to do? Isn't that why God saved us for his own glory? To produce fruit and much fruit. And he said to Israel, but instead of producing grapes, you produced bu'ushin, which is a Hebrew word for these little dried up huckleberries that were worthless. He says, here's what I'm going to do. And then he talked about judgment and how these nations came in and through them, God judged them. Well, most of us, we know, are not Jewish. The point of Paul telling this story is so that we don't look down on Israel and our Jewish friends and say, how could you be so blind? The Bible says that the Old Testament scriptures were written for our benefit, that we would learn from them. What can we learn? Well, I think it's clear that the application of this text is not just for Israel or Jews. In fact, Jesus said it this way, to whom much is given, much is required. You need to know that Jesus says there are degrees of punishment in eternity based on one's exposure to the truth. Jesus did a lot of his miracles in Judea, villages like Bethsaida and Chorazin. And he said, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Chorazin, if the miracles that you've seen were performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. He goes on to say, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. What can that mean other than to whom much is given, much is required? He didn't say Tyre and Sidon won't be judged. He said they will be, but less severely than those who had me in their midst who saw the miracles with their own eyes, yet willfully, stubbornly refused to believe. What does that say to us, Pastor Keith? I'll say it like I've said it many times here. I can't think of a more dangerous place to be when it comes to eternal judgment than sitting where you're sitting. I mean that. We live in the buckle of the Bible belt. No soldiers are standing at the door preventing us from entering. Almost all of us have multiple copies of God's word in our home. No one's stopping us from reading it. We can turn the radio on any time of day and hear the gospel. We have the internet. We have access to the greatest preachers that ever preached. We can manuscript every sermon ever preached and have access to it in a snap. 
And yet, most of our friends, maybe some in this room, continue in their unbelief. And on the day of judgment, just like Paul said to his Jewish friends, we cannot say, I can to be excused because I never heard. That will not hold water. We can't say, I didn't understand the implications. Because you do know the implications. That if you don't call upon the name of the Lord, you'll spend eternity in hell. And just like it was to Israel, the invitation is open to you today, my friend. You've heard it before. You've heard the preacher say, believe on Jesus. And just like many in Israel, you've said, not today. You've offered excuses and objections. We've all heard them. People have told me, well, I can't believe because I had a bad childhood. I don't doubt it. People said, I can't believe because my marriage went bad. People have said to me, I, I can't believe because I've had such a hard life. Look, no one is disputing that whatsoever. But the gospel is this. You're a sinner. You deserve God's punishment. And whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And hear this. People will disappoint you. They will. They have a long track record of it. But the Bible says all who put their faith and trust in Jesus will never be disappointed. That is ultimately, you can rest assured that he is a true and trustworthy Savior. And here we are today, six minutes till 12, late October. God is one more time extending to you a gospel invitation. Do not harden your heart. Do not stiffen your neck. Let it not be said of you, as it was of most of Paul's friends, that they are a stubborn and an obstinate people. Trust in Christ. Believe on Jesus. Be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Crystal clear. We are sinners. You're holy. You're kind, merciful, and long-suffering. We're stiff-necked and stubborn. And yet, Lord, even after all these years, you remain consistent, immutable, standing with arms outstretched, calling all who would believe to salvation. And Father, though you would be within your rights and just, kill us all every time we sin you don't for thousands of years you have been patient and merciful and long suffering and yet one day the age of grace will be over the window of opportunity will be closed tight and it will be everlasting too late thank you father that you've given someone here today one more day to believe Father, I pray that they will not ignore that grace, that they'll run to Jesus instead of away from him. Lord, I pray you'd soften some heart today that it's been in a posture of rebellion and repulsion to this message. Father, would you break down every barrier to their resistance? Father, would you grant them faith and repentance, even as you've done so many hundreds in this room? Father, the scripture says there's joy in heaven over one who repents.
May there be multiplied events of joy in heaven and on earth as we see spiritual awakening and revival in our church, in our city, state, nation, and world. May you receive the glory in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.